Well, it's great to be back with you all this morning. It's been a little while, so thanks for giving me time at home with the kiddos. I figured this morning I should probably start by giving you some updates on how the Jennings are doing. I figured I'd start with a few lessons that we're learning. We're five and a half weeks into life with uh, these little guys, Grace and Luke. Uh, We've been caring for these little critters for five and a half weeks now. And here are a few lessons that Julie and I have learned uh, for you parents out there. These are going to be patently obvious. For me, I had to learn them uh, through some pain over the last five and a half weeks. Here's some lessons about being a father of twins. Uh, Number one, just because you changed a diaper five minutes ago doesn't mean it's still clean right now. And in fact, if your newborn is smiling, it's a guarantee that the diaper is not clean. You need to clean it again. And speaking of diapers, I have learned that that's one industry that will never, ever, ever need a government bailout. If you want a safe place to put your money, invest in Huggies and Pampers, the Jennings will keep those companies afloat for at least the next year. You've got nothing to fear. Those companies are are guaranteed. Uh, Number three, I've learned that there's a reverse relationship between weight and volume of noise a child can make. My, my daughter, Grace, uh, when she was born, weighed less than four pounds, and I can still hear her screams ringing in my ears. I could get her sleeping, and I'd go to the other room, and I'd be convinced she's still crying because it was so loud. It's, it's left a, a, a memory with me. Uh, number four, people give you more clothes for your little girl than for your little boy, but it's actually the boy who needs far more of them because little boys can pee through anything. <laughs> There is no diaper that can contain my son. He, he pees through everything. We once had one feeding where my boy went through three wardrobe changes. He, he is a clothes horse. He goes through everything he owns. Uh, number five, Pilates, yoga, and a gym membership are three things parents of twins will never need because we get such a workout trying to carry two twins at once, balancing and bopping them and bouncing them and trying to keep them happy. Number five, I, I can't figure this one out. This one's beyond me. Maybe someone can explain this to me. We can send men to the moon, but for some inexplicable reason, we can't invent a pacifier that won't fall out of my child's mouth. I can't tell you how many late nights I have gotten up just to stick the pacifier back in Luke's mouth. Finally, last lesson I've learned over the last few weeks, there's no one on the planet who deserves more respect than the mother attempting to nurse premature twins. My respect of Julie has grown immeasurably over the last five and a half weeks. My life is easy. My job is easy. It's really nothing compared to what she has to deal with. So, um, so that's our lives now, caring for, for these two guys. They're doing well. Uh, this was uh, taken a, a couple weeks ago. Um, we're, we're very grateful for Luke and Gracie. We are very blessed. Uh, mother and children are doing wonderfully. Uh, but it has been quite an adventure getting here. I, I thought I would share with you guys some of our story. Many of you don't know uh, how all this came about. Uh, about five and a half weeks ago, on October 21st, we went in uh, for Julie's weekly checkup. Nothing going on, nothing abnormal. So we went to the doctor. And in the course of that appointment, they did a, a sonogram and found that Luke's heartbeat was uh, way above average. His heart was racing. It was way out of the safe zone. So they actually sent us over to the hospital. Um, And in the course of of being checked out and going through tests and procedures at the hospital, we actually found that Luke was fine. For some reason, he was excited in the middle of the sonogram. We don't know why, but the the good news is, is because we were sent over the hospital, they took Julie's blood and they found that she actually wasn't fine. Uh, Julie's body was rapidly entering something called preeclampsia. It's a dangerous condition. The only solution to that condition is to eliminate pregnancy, get the babies out of the body as quick as possible. Uh, So they gave us about 30 minutes to get dressed and ready, and we went in and had a C-section, and they took Luke and Gracie out of Julie. Uh, I'm really, really grateful for how the Lord worked that out. If Luke's heart hadn't been racing, 
they would have sent us home. Julie wasn't showing any outward signs. A couple days later, she would show the signs of a cold. It would look like she had a cold. A couple days later, she would go into seizures. So it's an incredibly serious condition. I, I'm, I'm pretty jazzed about the fact that my son wasn't even born yet, and he already had saved his mom's life. So that's pretty cool. Luke has got something going for him there. God was very gracious to us by causing Luke's heart to race for no apparent reason. He got us into the hospital, got the babies out in time. Unfortunately, preeclampsia doesn't go away immediately. Um, over the course of the next few hours during the night, Julie's body went downhill. And by the morning, the doctors came and told us that her liver and kidneys were shutting down. And so a number of doctors and nurses and the head of the whole LDR came and met with us, uh, and they said, Julie's got to go to intensive care. She's got to be taken down to the ICU. The twins are going to be taken off to the nursery. She'll be taken to ICU. They're going to try to get her turned around. If they can't, they're going to ship her off to Houston uh, where they can treat her uh, better. Uh, the condition was very serious. If she doesn't begin to turn around, it will be life-threatening. So there we are, sitting uh, with our new babies, a moment that's supposed to be incredibly joyful and told that our family's about to be separated, at least by multiple floors of the hospital, if not in different cities. Um, I remember being incredibly scared the moment that uh, that that conversation was done and a nurse came and brought us our twins and said, you should take some pictures with your twins because Julie won't be able to see them for a very long time because that was their expectation that she would be gone for a long, long time. So uh, we took those pictures and they took away my kids and then they took away my wife and sent her down to the ICU and left me alone in, in the hospital room, sitting there scared out of my wits, uh, thinking how in the world am I going to raise these kids without a wife? How, how in the world am I going to do this? Well, in the moment of fear, in the moment of that uh, intense, overwhelming fear that I had, there was one passage, one teaching out of Galatians that stuck with me. One thing out of this whole book that came to my mind that gave me comfort in the midst uh, of that incredible pain and fear that I felt, and it's our passage this morning. Uh, you can turn there. It's the end of Galatians 3, beginning of Galatians 4. You know, there's a lot of great things in Galatians. There's a lot about justification and sanctification and, and the law and what Christ has done for us. And all these great theological truths that are incredibly important. And none of them were what came to my mind at the moment that they carted Julie down to the ICU. It was this morning's passage that was a comfort to me. So I want to share it with you. First, we need to do a little review because it has been an eternity since we studied Galatians together. Uh, so let's review for a moment. If, if you recall, Galatians is what we would call an issue book. It's not a general letter written for lots of reasons. It's written for one reason to refute false teaching that had sprung up in the churches of Galatia. Uh, there were Jewish false teachers. We don't know if they were believers or unbelievers. What we do know is that they came into these churches that Paul had planted among Gentiles, and they told these Gentiles that, hey, faith in Jesus Christ is a great start to your Christian life. But if you want to be saved, you've got to also obey the law. That's the false teaching behind Galatians, that salvation requires works. Okay, faith is a good start, that's great everybody, but you also must work, you must earn it. If you want to be a full Christian, a mature Christian, a full son of God, you've got to not just have faith, but also works. Well, Paul strongly disagrees with that. He refutes that teaching throughout the entire book of Galatians. That's what it's all about. He refutes it in, in two parts. There's really two issues that Paul deals with, and we've been talking about them throughout the past few weeks. The first issue that Paul deals with is the question of justification. Remember, justification in the book of Galatians is God's declaration that we are right with him that we are accepted by him, that we are forgiven. He declares us to be righteous. Now, look with me. We studied this specifically, really clearly in chapter two. Look back at chapter two, verse 16. 
Paul taught us, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Paul says it's by faith alone that justification comes. The law cannot justify you. Why is that? Why can't the law make us righteous in the sight of God? Well, we saw that last week, chapter 3, or not last week, last passage. Chapter 3, starting in verse 21, Paul says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. In other words, the law can't make you righteous. All the law can do is prove that you're not righteous. All the law could ever do was show us what sinners we are. The law never made us righteous. It just led us to our knees to cry out to God, God, I am unrighteous. There's nothing I can do to please you. Please save me. The law brings us to the place where we have no choice but to trust in Christ. That's what the law is about. It doesn't justify us. The second thing that Paul deals with, uh, not just our justification, but also our sanctification. How does this come to us? Remember, sanctification is what happens after justification as we grow in our Christian life. Sanctification is about becoming more like Jesus, growing up in the Christian faith. How are we sanctified? The Judaizers might say, okay, Paul, sure, justification, that comes by faith alone. But if we want to grow up in the faith, if we want to become mature, if we want to look good to God, then we must do the works of the law. That's, that's really the question that Paul, the, the issue, the charge that Paul is dealing with in chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. Paul says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That was what the Judaizers were teaching. Okay, you began by faith, you began by the Spirit, but now it's through your works, through your deeds, through your effort that you make yourself look good to God. You grow up through your works, through what you do. Well, Paul doesn't agree with that. Paul does not believe that it's by obeying the law, by doing good works, that we grow up in our faith. And he began to refute the charge of the Judaizers to teach that sanctification is by faith, not law. In the passage that we looked at last time, and I want to look at the end of that passage, Uh, let's look at verses 24 and 25. Paul says, right before our passage this morning, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. And remember, the Greek word that's translated here, tutor, is really better translated nanny. Paul's point is God gave the law to be our nanny to discipline us and restrain us before Christ came. The law was meant for humanity without Christ. Before they knew Christ, the law restrained them and acted like a nanny over them. But now that we know Christ, what should we do with the law? We should send it away. We don't need a nanny anymore because we have Jesus Christ. We are related to Jesus Christ. We have a relationship with Christ. We don't need this sign of our immaturity, this nanny anymore. We are done with the law. Paul's point is the law has no continuing effectiveness in your life. Once you are saved, once you are brought into the family of God through faith in Christ, you're done with the law. Send it away. It has no benefit for you. The law is a great thing for unbelievers, not for you. Now, Paul wants to continue to drive that point home in our passage this morning. He wants to continue to make the case that sanctification doesn't come by the law. It comes by something else. 
It's not by the law that we grow, it's by something else. Paul's gonna continue to make that point actually kind of in two parts. Our passage splits up into two parts and, and it actually, there's a progression in our passage this morning. It goes from good to better. Paul's gonna start out with really good news of what we get through faith, not through works and then he's gonna move on to something even better we get through faith, not through works. So we wanna look at those two things this morning. Paul starts by telling us the incredible good news that Through faith, not through works, we all become sons of God. Look at verse 26. Paul says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. All of us are sons of God through faith, not by works. Now, I I used to read this passage and struggle with it some. I wondered, why did God say sons and not sons and daughters? Why? Why? Why is it all sons here? You, you ladies out there may be reading this passage and thinking, what's up with that? Is God not okay with the feminine gender? Is he only okay with, with men, with sons? What, what's going on here? Is this a little sexist in this passage? Well, I struggled with it until I did some background research. And let me read you something I discovered in doing research on this a long time ago. Uh, here's from one of my Bible background commentaries about women in the ancient world. A woman could never escape tutelage. As long as she remained unmarried, she was under the authority of her father or of another male blood relative, while a married woman came under her husband's authority. The marriage was arranged without her by her father or guardian and the bridegroom's father. With the payment of a sum of money as compensation for the loss of her services, she was transferred from one household to the other. She possessed no property apart from her own personal wardrobe. If she had a dowry, it went to her husband." In other words, in the ancient world, to be a son was awesome. You you had everything. You had all the privileges, all the opportunities, all the possessions. To be a daughter wasn't. To be a daughter in the ancient world was to be a second-class member of the family. You had few rights. You had few opportunities, no education, no possessions. And so if Paul would have said that by faith in Christ we become sons and daughters of God, then Christian women in the ancient world would be left wondering, um, so am am I second-class in God's family like I'm second-class in my own family? But Paul leaves no room for doubt. To to women who felt marginalized and, and left out this passage, this verse would have been incredibly good news. It says that no matter whether you're male or female, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ. You have all the possessions, all the opportunity, all the privilege that sonship brings that belongs to all of us, men and women alike. Okay, so that's great news. Paul is not leaving women out. He's actually including women here on full equal terms with us men. Now, the question we should ask is, how is it that we become a part of this family? We, we know it's through faith in Christ, but, but how did we actually become part of the family of God? You see, we weren't born into this family. When, when we were born from our mother's womb, we were actually born into a very different family. Ephesians 2 talks about it. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, not children of God. We were children of wrath. So how is it that we have come out of being a child of wrath and come to be a son of God? Well, the next verse tells us how. How did this transfer of family happen? Verse 27, for all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. We have been transferred out of the kingdom of Satan, out of the family of disobedience, out of the family of wrath into the family of God through baptism. 
Okay, and, and baptism here is, isn't really talking about water baptism per se. It's talking about the spiritual reality that water baptism symbolizes. It's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us elsewhere, a very significant passage, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Paul's point is the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, something very significant happens. The Holy Spirit comes and takes you and baptizes you into the body of Christ. Baptism, that, that word baptizo in Greek, it, it means identification. To be baptized with someone is to be identified with them. At the moment of our salvation, we are identified with Jesus Christ. Now, Paul uses a similar concept back in verse 27. He says that we have been clothed with Christ. Now, when you look at me right now, notice that most of what you see here is my clothing. See just a little bit of skin, a little bit of hair, a little bit of skin on my hands? You see mostly clothing. That's why throughout all of recorded history, clothing has been a symbol of one's status and wealth because that's what you see when you look at me. Especially in the ancient world, my clothing would represent my identity. It would say to you who I am based on the clothing that I wore. And that's the imagery that Paul picks up. What is the clothing that God sees when he looks at us? Jesus. Jesus is our new identity. He is who we are clothed in. We wear Jesus. When God the Father looks at us, he sees Jesus Christ. We are in Jesus. That's the idea here. We, we have a new identity, and that identity is Jesus Christ. So how is it that we entered into the family of God? Is it, is it by our works? Is it by the stuff that we did? Is it by attending church? Is that how we entered into the family of God? Well, no. Getting into the family of God has nothing to do with us. We didn't do anything to get in. It's all about Jesus. It's about wearing Jesus, being in Jesus through faith. That's what gets us in to the family of God. Now, if you're here this morning and you wonder, does God accept me as his son? When God looks at me, does he see his son? Will I spend eternity with God as his son in heaven? If you wonder that, the good news is you can, you can answer that question forever right now. If you want to know that God accepts you as a son, that God loves you as a son, that you will spend eternity with God as his son, all you need to do is simply place your faith in Jesus Christ. You simply need to believe that Jesus really did come in the flesh to earth, die for your sins, and rise from the dead. If you believe in that finished work of Jesus Christ, then you are instantly and forever made a son of God. You will spend eternity with God. You're forgiven. You're given eternal life. You will forever be a son of God if you simply believe. So please, if you doubt that, come talk to me or someone else here this morning. You don't have to doubt it. If you believe that Jesus died for you and rose from the dead, you are for sure a son of God, and you always will be. Now, Paul goes on from there and he begins to tell us some of the results. What does it mean that we're sons of God? What is the result for our community and for our lives? Look at me with me at verse 28. Paul starts talking about the results. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Now, verse 28 would have been very radical in the ancient world. Paul's contemporaries, both Jews and Gentiles alike, would not agree with verse 28. 
There, there were huge distinctions in the minds of Jews and Gentiles between all of these classes, between Jew and Gentile, between slave and free, between male and female. You, you, you gather that, you see that when you look at the prayers of the Jews in the ancient world. Here's, here's a prayer that Jewish men prayed every morning from about 150 A.D., Jewish men would get up in the morning and they would say, blessed be God that he did not make me a Gentile. Blessed be God that he did not make me a boar, a peasant or a slave. And blessed be God that he did not make me a woman. Now that prayer actually makes a ton of sense in the minds of Paul's opponents. Remember, Judaizers believe you impress God by keeping what? The law. Well, who is best suited to keep the law? A free, educated Jewish man. They had all the privileges. They had the education. They had the opportunities. They had the law. They knew what to do. They were the privileged ones. They could keep the law the best. So those men prayed this prayer. Thank God that I'm not a woman. She doesn't have the freedom to keep the law. Thank God that I'm not a Gentile. That'd be horrible. This prayer makes a ton of sense in the minds of Paul's opponents, but it's absolute folly based on what Paul just said. What did Paul just teach us? We are all equally sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no room for distinction. There is no room for some being better off than another. All of us are on equal footing before God. This is really the beautiful news of the gospel. It tears down divisions that human beings create. It tears down the ugly walls of discrimination that we create. The gospel tears them all down. This is just one passage among many that show us the the high view that, that the Bible has of Gentiles, women, and slaves. These groups that were relegated to the trash bin in the ancient world, the Bible lifts them up, it elevates them. You see that most clearly when you look at the the life of Jesus Christ. Talk about a radical guy. Jesus was stepping on social norms from day one. There's this incident recorded that, that we take for granted, we kind of pass over. Jesus sits down at a well with a Samaritan woman. What's wrong with that? Okay, she's the wrong race. She's a Samaritan, not a Jew, and she's the wrong gender. She's a woman, not a man. Jesus begins to speak with her. He actually shares the gospel with her. He demonstrates love to her. He saves her and then he saves half her village. That was incredible. That was a scandal back then. Just one more example of how the Bible elevates these classes that have been forgotten. If if you're a good scholar of the Bible, there is absolutely no room in your life for racism or sexism. The, The Bible just doesn't allow it. Racism and sexism can't exist in the Bible because all of us are absolutely equal before God. The gospel is the great equalizer. We are all fully sons of God through what? Through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the great news of the gospel. There's still distinctions. Men and women have separate roles in church and home. Jews and Gentiles are still distinct. God looks at them distinctly. But all of us are equal, equally loved as God's sons. It's the great news of the gospel. That's radical. It's incredible. We're all equal before God by faith, not by works. But Paul's not done yet. Through faith, not only do we become sons of God, that's really good news. That's great news, but he's not done yet. He wants to move on to something even better. Through faith, we also become heirs of God. Not just sons, but also heirs. Paul brings that up back in verse 29. Look there again. If you belong to Christ and you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Now, an heir is someone who has received an inheritance. Now, now what is this inheritance that belongs to us? Well, Paul points it out. He mentions a specific guy here, Abraham. He points us back to the promises that God made to Abraham. That's Genesis chapters 12 through 22, something we call the Abrahamic covenant. 
This Abrahamic covenant is incredibly foundational in Scripture. The whole Bible is really based on this promise made to Abraham and his descendants, all of these wonderful things that God will do for them. But if you've studied the Abrahamic covenant, you know there's, there's just one problem. It, it's made with Abraham and with his genetic descendants. That's who? That's the Jews. I'm assuming most of us in this room are not Jews. We're, we're Gentiles. The covenant doesn't belong to us or it didn't belong to us. How is it that Paul can say that now we have this inheritance, that we have inherited this covenant that was never made with us? Well, look back at chapter three. Chapter three, verse 16. Paul says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seed is referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed that is Christ. Paul's point is, when God made this incredible promise to Abraham and Abraham's descendants, he actually only had one descendant in mind, Jesus Christ. Jesus is what you might call the ultimate Jew, the super Jew. He's the only Jew who ever fulfilled God's plan for the Jewish race. He perfectly obeyed God. And as a result, Jesus Christ alone received all of the blessings of the covenant. All of the promises of the covenant already belong to Jesus Christ. They're in his lap. He's received it all. And that's why verse 27 is such great news. Because where are we? We are in Christ. We are clothed with Christ. So all these wonderful things he's received from God now belong to us. Because we are in Christ, we own what belongs to Jesus. Paul makes that point in 1 Corinthians 3, 21 to 23. For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. We have all things because we are in Christ. Because Jesus owns all of the covenant promises, we get to enjoy them. The the New Testament actually lists out a ton of things that we get to enjoy as part of our inheritance because we are united to Christ. Few things in particular, uh, it lists off a number of things in Galatians, including justification, that's part of the covenant promise. Uh, The gift of the Spirit, that's part of the covenant promise. Sonship with God, peace, joy, hope, fulfillment, victory over sin and Satan, all kinds of things. All of these blessings belong to you because you are in Christ. Christ and Christ owns everything. The Bible also talks about future things. In the future, we will receive as part of our inheritance the right to rule over the whole earth with Jesus. Jesus has has ownership of the earth. He's going to share that with you. In the coming eschatological days, you will rule beside Jesus Christ over the earth. Why? Because you're an heir. You're an heir with Jesus Christ. All that he has, he shares with you. Peter sums it up great. In 2 Peter, he summarizes what we have as heirs of God. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. In other words, every single thing you need for life Everything that you need to honor God, everything that you need to experience peace and fulfillment and joy and purpose in life, you already have. There is nothing missing from your life. You don't need to go look for something you don't already have. Every blessing that God has, you already own in Christ. It all belongs to you. But now that kind of brings us back to our central question this morning. We own this inheritance, but how do we enjoy it? How do we get to access and enjoy these blessings of God and grow in joy and peace and fulfillment and purpose in our life? How do we enjoy our inheritance? 
You see, there's a difference between owning something and enjoying something. I saw that when my dad, my brother, and I went to Corpus Christi this summer. We were really saddened. We were out there on this beautiful, gorgeous summer day, uh, out on the docks around all of these like quarter million dollar and up sailboats, incredible sailboats. And what was saddening was to see that over the course of the day, only a couple of them went out. All the others stayed moored to the dock, tied up, buttoned down. Their owners nowhere in sight. They were owned, but they weren't enjoyed. Why? Well, those owners either didn't have the time or they didn't have the skills to take the boats out or they lost interest. Whatever it was, for whatever reason, they owned these beautiful half-million-dollar boats and they weren't enjoying them. Well, so it is with the Christian life. God has given us, what, everything pertaining to life and godliness. We have everything, all joy, all peace, all victory, all help, all strength. And yet so few Christians enjoy it. So many Christians right here in America live lives of defeat, lives of sadness, lives of discouragement, lives of worldliness, lives of sin. All of this belongs to them. They are heirs of the infinite promises of God through Jesus Christ, and yet they're not enjoying them. They're living sad, worldly lives. That's not what God wants for us. He wants us to enjoy this infinite inheritance that belongs to us every day. He wants us to live lives of infinite joy and peace and purpose and love and satisfaction. But how do we do it? How do I enjoy my inheritance as an heir of God? Well, the Judaizers have an answer to that. How would they answer that question? How do I enjoy my inheritance? Well, by obeying the law. That's what the Judaizers always do. Okay, if there's a question, then the answer is the law. If you want to enjoy something, you've got to work for it. Okay, you're an heir, but if you want to enjoy your inheritance, you've got to impress God through your works. You've got to obey the law. Well, Paul won't have any of that. Paul strongly disagrees. He tells us that the Judaizers could not be further from the truth, starting in chapter 4. Look with me in verse 1. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, though he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. What Paul is saying is that the law is is for children. The law is not for heirs. The law, this list of rules and regulations, that's what God created for immature people to restrict them, to hold them down so they couldn't go do something stupid. It's not meant for us, mature heirs of God. The law is like these swaddles that we put on Luke and Gracie. They're these stretchy blankets and and you swaddle them and you wrap them like three times around. You pull them super tight so that they can't get their arms out. It's like a straight jacket. It's actually really good for Luke and Gracie. They have very immature nervous systems. So if you don't swaddle them, their arms flail about and they end up smacking themselves in the head and waking up and there's crying and it's all sad. We tried one night without swaddles and it was awful. It was horrible. They need these swaddles. That's what the law does. For people who are immature, the law binds them. It restricts them. It keeps them from doing stupid stuff. But once they grow up, once they meet Jesus Christ and become a son of God, they don't need the law anymore. Just like Luke and Gracie will one day not need those swaddles. I'm really looking forward to that. We don't need the law. Going back under the law would be like me asking Julie to swaddle me. It'd be be silly. It'd be pretty embarrassing if you saw me wrapped up in a swaddle. I hopefully don't need that anymore at this point in my life. The law is for childhood. It's not for mature heirs. It's not through the law that we enjoy the inheritance. It's through something else. Actually, it's not a what that allows us to enjoy the inheritance It's a who. It's all about a who. Paul tells us, starting in the next couple verses. Verse four. 
But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. How is it that we enjoy this infinite inheritance that God has given us? It's not through anything we do. It's not through any list of rules and regulations. It's through persons, two people, number one, through God the Son. Through the redemption that God the Son brought. It's very interesting language that Paul uses. He tells us that the the way that Christ freed us from bondage, from the straitjacket of the law, was becoming one of us. Born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus came and identified with us fully, and then he died to set us free from the curse of the law. He set us free so that we might enjoy life as full-grown, mature sons. First, we enjoy our inheritance through the work of the Son, but then second, look with me, starting in verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. It's not just through the work of the son, but through the work of the spirit. That we grow as mature heirs, that we enjoy our inheritance. What Paul's telling us is that now that Jesus, the son, has set us free from sin and from the law, the spirit comes along and the spirit draws us into the presence of the father. He draws us into the presence of the Father, to the feet of the Father, so that we might look to God as our Abba. That's a very significant word. Abba in Aramaic means Papa. It was a term of endearing intimacy between Father and Son. It was a term that Jews really never used of God. You just don't go there in Judaism. For, For Judaism, God is way up there. He's the sovereign king. You would never be so crass as to call him Papa. He's way up there. But but then Jesus came. And Jesus taught us something different. Yeah, yeah, God is way up there. He's sovereign, he's almighty, but he's also your dad. He's also your papa who loves you and welcomes you into his presence. Jesus modeled this for us at his moment of greatest need when he was in tears in the garden of Gethsemane, desperate to not go to the cross. What did he call God? Papa. It's one place where he does it. Not father, but papa. And what Paul's telling us, what Jesus wants us to understand is we have that same close access to God. He is not only our king, he is also our papa. The Holy Spirit makes that possible. And I think what Paul's doing here is this is really the answer to the question we started with. How is sanctification possible? How do we grow in the likeness of God? How do we grow up in our faith? Is it by keeping a list of rules and regulations? Is it by keeping the law? No, it's not. Your works cannot bring growth to your life. You cannot grow through works. How do you grow? By spending time with your papa. Through the power of the spirit, drawing into the presence of your heavenly dad. That's how you grow in the Christian life. That's what Christianity is all about. It's spending time with our papa. It's actually the same way that growth happens in in our families. I've noticed uh, now that I'm married and now that I have kids, I've noticed that I do a lot of things that my human dad did growing up. Uh, I'm a lot like Chip Jennings, whether I've tried or not. I I just act a lot like him. I've noticed it more and more over the years. And, and, And it's interesting when you think about how did I grow to be like Chip? Is it because I wrote down a list of Chip Jennings rules for life and made sure that I kept them? One, two, three, four. Is that how I grew to be like him? Well, no, I... I'm like my dad because that's just what happens when you spend years and years in the same house with someone you admire. He rubs off on you. You see how he treats his wife. You see how he treats his work. You see how he treats his kids. You see how he uses his money. I see all these things that Chip Jennings does. They rub off on me and now I act like him. That's how sanctification works. That is the secret to Christianity. If you want to act like God, you got to spend time with God. 
If you spend time with God as your dad, he will rub off on you. You will become more and more like him. It's not by the law. It's not by our works. It's not by our effort that we grow to be more like Jesus. It's by spending time with God. That's Paul's answer for us. The Judaizers had it all wrong. They were trying to get these Gentile Galatians to go back to a period of immaturity where Paul wants to move them forward. Christian life is all about spending time with your heavenly father. Let's summarize and then let's apply this. What Paul wants us to understand from this passage is that it is by faith alone, not by works, that number one, we become sons of God. All of us, men and women, black and white, slave or free, Aggie or T-Sip, all of us become sons of God on equal footing through faith in Christ, not through anything that we do. And number two, it's not only becoming a son of God, but it's also sharing in Christ's inheritance. We become heirs of the infinite promises of God through faith, not through works. We have access to infinite joy and peace and significance and purpose and satisfaction and even reward in the next life, not through our works, but through faith in Christ. Let me draw this together for you guys. Let me start by returning to our story uh, when we were there in the hospital five and a half weeks ago uh, as they carted Julie off to the ICU. What did I need to do at that moment? I really needed help at that moment. I was extremely scared. Uh, I was pretty desperate. I couldn't think straight. What did I need to do at that moment as they took my wife away to experience the peace and joy of God? Did I need to impress God by keeping a list of rules? Did did I need to demonstrate my piety to God so maybe he would help me? Did I need to make a deal with God? God, I'll do this if you'll just help me. No. God's not a policeman that I need to obey. He's not a a judge that I need to impress. He's not a politician that I need to bribe. God is is my dad. He, He wants to help me. He wants to care for me. I don't need to impress him. I just need to turn to him and ask for help. And that's what I did. I turned to God and I said, God, I'm desperate. I I need your help. Went down to a little chapel they have there at at the hospital and I pulled out my Bible and I read some and I prayed some and I said, God, I need your help. I'm desperate. I'm scared to death. I don't know what I'm gonna do. Please help me. I poured out my fears to God and sure enough, he comforted me. I didn't have to earn his comfort. He wanted to comfort me. God wanted to help me because that's what good fathers do. They help their kids and God is the best of fathers. So he helped me and he provided for me. And sure enough, 30 hours later, Julie was better and released from ICU. She rejoined our family. That's actually uh, not a small miracle. We found out uh, through Julie's mom, she had a friend who had exactly the same situation as Julie, who spent seven weeks in the ICU. Julie spent just over one day because God was faithful. God was good. God helped us. He provided, he healed, he blessed. Not because we earned it. Not because I kept some list of rules and regulations, not because I made a deal with God, but simply because I asked, Dad, help us. And he did. What Paul wants us to do this morning, I think the application that he is driving us to, uh, two parts of this application that I want to give you to end this morning. He wants us to understand that Christian life is all about learning to relate to our God as Dad. If you want to have success, victory, peace, purpose, joy in your Christian life, It's all about spending time with God as Papa. Now, how do you do that? How do you relate to God as your dad? Let me give you four specific things. Four things, you can write these down. God gives us four tools. Number one, we learn about our dad and his word. That's what the Bible is. It is a revelation of dad to us. 
When you open your Bible and you read it, I challenge you, do that every day. Read a passage of scripture and every time you do, ask yourself, what does this teach me about my dad? What do I learn about my heavenly dad from this passage? That's what the word is. It's teaching us about our dad so that we can know him, so that we can draw near to him. So spend time in the word. Number two, memorize some of that scripture. Memorize scripture so that when you need dad, you can remember who he is. Now, for me, this, this was key. Years ago, I memorized Psalm 23. As Julie was being carted down the hallway, that's what replayed over and over again in my head. That day, I, I, countless times, Psalm 23 was playing in my head. That's what I needed. Because so what does Psalm 23 remind me about my dad? That he's a good shepherd. He wants only what's best for us. He's providing for us. He's caring for us. He's taking care of everything we need. His goodness and loving mercy is following us. Scripture memory was exactly what I needed Psalm 23 to remind me who my dad was in my moment of need. Third tool that God gives us is prayer. Prayer is is not some overly spiritual thing. It's just a conversation with your dad. Prayer is is something easy. It's just talking with your dad. It's, It's telling your dad what you're thankful for. Telling your dad what you like about him. It's telling your dad what you're sorry for. It's telling your dad what you're you're fearful about. It's telling your dad what you need and what your loved ones need. It's just talking to God about your life. So prayer is you come into his presence and speak to him through prayer. And finally, worship. Worship is one of the things that pleases the heart of our dad more than anything else. When we gather together in, in public like we did this morning and sing his praises, that delights the heart of our Father. But we don't have to do it in groups. We can do it individually or in our families. At home, you can worship the Lord. You are truly coming into the presence of God when you worship. You are delighting the heart of your heavenly Father when you worship. So relate to your, your heavenly Father as dad, as papa. Spend time in his presence through his word, through scripture memory, through prayer, and through worship. Those are the tools he gives us to draw near to him. As you do that, you will grow. As you do that, you will enjoy your inheritance. All of the blessings of God. Remember Peter's words, everything for life and godliness, everything you need in life already belongs to you. You enjoy it by spending time with Papa. So make, make that a part of this week. Spend time with God as your dad. That's how you find success and joy and peace and life. Second application I have, only for... Some of us, us fathers, last application I want to leave us with is something that's been hitting me hard over the last few weeks. Um, Dads, um, we really need to take our job seriously. Uh, God has chosen to do something very radical. He has shared his title with us. Father, Father. He, He shared his title with us. What does that mean? That means that when my kids grow up, when Luke and Gracie grow up, they will look at God as their father through the lens of me through how I treated them. What does the love of their heavenly father mean? Well, I'll be the one who teaches it to them through how I love them. What does it mean that God the father is compassionate? They'll learn it through me. Am I compassionate to other people? What does it mean that God the father is faithful? They'll learn it through me. Was I faithful? They learn what it means that God is their father through me. That's incredibly serious, weighty stuff. I, I, think, um, I think I'm right and kind of made a shift in my priorities. You've noticed it. I haven't been preaching. I changed my job description in life. Number one job description, be a good dad. That's the title I share with God, not husband, not pastor, father. That's the one that God shares with me. That's my big responsibility in life. Show my kids what it means that God is a good dad. 
So fathers, I challenge you the same way. As you walk away from this passage, it's an incredible responsibility to us, a privilege. What a privilege. We get to show our kids who God is, but also a huge responsibility. How are we going to do it? This is a big responsibility. That's how are we going to do it? Well, back to application number one. If we want to be a good dad, we need to spend time with the best dad. We need him to rub off on us. Draw close to God through his word, through scripture memory, through prayer, through worship. Do these things daily. Why? So he can rub off on us so that we can be more like him. Let's pray for his help. Lord God, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts that you have caused us to be called your sons and heirs. All of us, men and women, free, slaves, black, white, rich, poor, Republican, Democrat, all of us are equally your sons through faith in Jesus Christ. We rejoice and praise you and thank you for that. Thank you that not only are we we your sons, but we're your heirs. You have given us everything through Jesus Christ. Everything we need in this life already belongs to us. And so, Father, I pray that as we go from here, you would help us, number one, to believe that, believe that there's, there's nothing lacking in our life, that there's nothing that you've shortchanged us on. Lord, help us to believe that and then also help us to spend time with you so that we can enjoy this inheritance. I pray that every person in this room, myself included, would spend quality time with you this week, that we would come into your presence not only as our king, but also as our dad, and that we would get to know you better in your word, and that we would get to spend time with you in prayer and in worship. Please, Father, draw us close to you. Help us to find peace and joy and significance and victory in this life through spending time in your presence. Thank you so much for all that you've done. Thank you that you made it all possible by putting to death our brother, Jesus Christ, your son. Thank you that he died for us so that we might be free of sin and might live to you. Thank you for this day. We lift it all in the name of Jesus Christ to you. Amen. All right, I'll see you guys next week as we continue in Galatians.